Hey, welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for the 6th of October, Wednesday, midweek, heading into Thanksgiving weekend. We talked about Facebook and Instagram, and with the testimony of the whistleblower in front of the U.S. Congress, um, that's a big macro issue, isn't it? Government regulation, and I know my eyes roll too. Sometimes when we think about, are we going to have a real long discussion about government regulation? How boring. But... It's important because it affects all of us. There's the political aspect of Facebook. There's the personal aspect of Facebook and the influence that it has. It's a drug for some people. It's absolutely social media is something we wonder whether we should control a little bit more of, and especially for younger people. Um, As self-control, as a teenager, as a kid, as a 10-year-old, not quite the same when you're 40 or 50, is it? So we'll talk about that. Uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin will give his thoughts on that. He's uh, a former journalism school uh, president and as well ran an NPR newsroom for 10 years with National Public Radio in the States. Dr. Zane Chagla, the latest on COVID. And I want to go global and talk about the perspective of eliminating COVID via vaccine, the things that are going well and the things we're still struggling with so far. And speaking of vaccines, rapid tests, Merritt Stiles, NDP education critic, in response to rapid tests coming to some harder hit school areas. Most of you won't deal with it in your area because we're doing really well with schools and we're doing really well with containing the Delta uh, variant. That's how vaccinated we are and we're still risk mitigating well. All that coming up on the Toronto Today podcast. Really excited uh, to have our next guest on. I'm very aware of who he is. He was a VP of news uh, for NPR for close to a decade uh, from the 90s, end of the 90s through the turn of the century. Uh, Born in Canada, but he's worked on both sides of the border um, and wrote a journalism textbook. I'd love to go back to journalism school. I miss it. I could sleep in later as well. Trusting the news in a digital age uh, just this year. So perfect timing to have Jeffrey Dvorkin on. It's great to have you on, Jeffrey. I appreciate you coming on with me. My pleasure, Greg. Let's talk a little bit about the coverage of this specifically, of this story. Uh, Sunday, uh, we start to see, oh, 60 Minutes has this big thing, whistleblower on Facebook. And then yesterday, uh, on Tuesday, rather, yeah, the congressional testimony of it. It, it, are, Are the left and the right, especially in the United States, treating this story quite the same? So far, they seem to be doing that because I think the extent of Facebook's influence as revealed on the 60 minutes interview caught a lot of people by surprise uh, perhaps it shouldn't have but it but it did so there's a kind of uh, appropriate journalistic uh, curiosity and neutrality about this story for the moment i don't think it's become left and right just yet partly because every political party every media all media in Canada and certainly in the United States, have some kind of relationship with Facebook. This has made things a little more complicated for how to cover this story. CBS also has a Facebook page, obviously. Uh, So does Chorus, so does the CBC, Mm -hmm. so does the Globe and Mail. The question then is, how private is the information that your medium or your university or whomever gets a hold of this information and what do they do with it? And I think that's the question that is going to be asked everywhere at this point. I just had a conversation with someone from one of the banks who I played tennis with this morning. um, How'd how'd you do? 
and let me let me continue. Uh, um, he said that he got a call from someone allegedly from Visa. Uh, saying that I know where you had your coffee, you got your coffee this morning, and he created this relationship and then tried to get some money out of it. Well, how did this person know where my my tennis partner bought his coffee? It's because he paid with a credit card, and that information immediately went to Facebook, and that immediately went to scam artists. This is the problem we're now seeing. I think we all we suspected it, but now we know there there are three factors here. One is is Facebook keeping us safe in some way? And clearly they're not. Is Facebook guarding our privacy? Clearly they're not. They're selling our information wherever they can and they're making a heck of a lot of money. And then the other thing is they're a monopoly. There is no real competition with Facebook. So the issue in Congress, and I hope in Canada as well, is maybe this needs to be regulated just like a gas company, a public utility that needs to have some measure of accountability, or if not, maybe it should be broken up. Yeah, you're right about the monopoly. This is not a cable company where you've got options or even a phone company. You and I grew up, when you grew up in Canada, uh, when you wanted a landline, you call Bell Canada, and that was it. And so you were, you know, you were part and parcel uh, at their whim, if you will, in terms of what they would offer you for services and what they would charge. That's all changed right now. I'm really curious if you were running a big media company right now. I, I documented this in 2007. I'm working in Detroit. My boss says you got to get on Facebook. Your show needs to be on Facebook. Do this, do that. Two years ago, two years later, when I'm in Toronto, they say you got to get on Twitter. Would you be telling your employees? Pump the brakes on this. If anything, stay off it as much as you can. Bill Simmons, the uh, you know the sports writer turned uh, like basically billionaire now, said one thing about about social media. He said, "I can't make any money from being on it, and I can get fired because of it." And we see this in our business, don't we? Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that needs to be sorted out is if you are working for a news organization and you post something on. Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, what is the nature of that posting? Is it more about your journalism or is it about your personal opinion? And now we're at a time when personal opinion is being blended so much with the news. And part of it is the problem with the digital culture, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is that the digital culture has hollowed out news organizations. When advertising fled to Uh, Craigslist and now YouTube and other places, Uh, the old way in which, say, a newspaper could get revenue from want ads, that's gone. That's absolutely disappeared. So news organizations, which have a a fiduciary obligation to give some money back to the people who've invested in them, that's perfectly normal. What they've done is they've doubled down on digital and they've made it more complicated for the public. It has turned all of us into the product that is being sold by these media companies. And I think that there has to be, as they say in the States, a kind of come to Jesus moment where there's a recognition that this this cannot stand. This has to change Mm -hmm. so that we are treating our audiences as citizens first and then consumers of media second.
And that's going to be the challenge. Who's going to take on these large companies? And right now I saw just today that Carleton University has given a uh, lectureship to the head of Facebook in Canada. Well, I... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have, I have some I have some questions about that. I bet you no, I I I bet you do. I want to I want to uh get a good long answer here so you feel free to stretch this out. Um but I want to ask you there's two big issues here for me. One is the Facebook inside the home and as a parent and and as we're seeing the influence on teenagers specifically females. The other is political. I heard a lot of people listen to our segments yesterday say, "I don't care about the political stuff. I'll vote for who I want to vote for. I'm not dissuaded." I I know what bad information is, but I am worried about my kids. And there's some people clearly that are worried about both. But there are two very different, uh, specific, you know, laned issues, aren't they? They are. Uh, they're separate issues, but they're also intric- intricately connected. Uh, when I taught at the U of T and t- teaching first year students out in Scarborough, wonderful, wonderful students. But the young women would occasionally confess to me that they felt demoralized and depressed by just going on the internet. Because there's always someone hipper, cuter, smarter, wealthier than you are. And so so when you're an 18-year-old young man or young woman, this has an incredible uh, effect of demoralization. And it also, and here's the other thing that I, that I think is a real issue, is that the Internet, not necessarily uh, yeah. Facebook particularly, but the Internet in general, is a purveyor of pornography. And this is now also an issue that needs to somehow be addressed, even as we acknowledge that there are, uh, we have, there are free speech issues here, but... I remember two, three young women came to my office at UTSC and said, what's the matter with the guys here? I said, what do you mean? They said, they don't look at us in the eyes. They don't talk to us. They seem to think that we are basically porn stars in waiting. And I was, I, I tell you, I was shocked. But I think that mm-hmm. this is part of the, when you talk about the influence of the internet on younger people, especially on children, um, uh, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, yeah. has had a powerful demoralizing effect on uh, kids in their early teens because of this idea that there's so much more out there and I'm not part of it. So there's this FOMO, fear of missing out phenomenon yeah. that, that exists now. So somehow we have to figure a way that mm. we can regulate, control, make our needs as citizens as parents, as teachers, as students, known and know that we need to take some action on this. I wish we had tons more time. You're fascinating to talk to about this. I hope you come back. We'll ask you back soon. I hope you say yes, because I, th- I think your opinions really and your ex- expertise on this really valuable. Thanks, Jeffrey. My pleasure. Jeffrey Dvorkin, former director of journalism program at the University of Toronto. Uh, our next guest, we're always uh, eager to talk to. He is Dr. Zane Chagla, infectious diseases physician at St. Joe's Hamilton and an associate prof at McMaster University. Dr. Chagla, it's been a while. I hope all is well in your world. Thanks very much for making the time for me. 
No, thanks for having me. I saw I saw you mentioned yesterday, um, and we played the clip actually of Jacinda Ardern, uh, the uh, New Zealand Prime Minister, who in essence abandoned the concept of going COVID zero. New Zealand had has unbelievable advantages that we don't have here in Canada with the size of the country, the span, the the land border with the United States. Um, so how would I put it? They gave it a good run, but post vaccine and post Delta, um, it, it probably wasn't the policy. Were, were we at all misguided hoping or thinking we could do it back in January or February? You know, if this was the beginning and, uh, and you know, the, the, the way it was, then, then yeah, I mean, I, I think there was potential for this to work, but you know, as we saw this thing progress, especially, you know, the big thing about this infection is, we have people that are infected that are asymptomatic. And unless we can hermetically kind of seal ourselves off from the world, track every case aggressively, you know, offer all those supports and isolation pieces to get everyone, uh, you know, settled. Um, and unfortunately, you know, one of the things that Australia and New Zealand dealt with is also enforcement that, that you know, is, is something that we as Canadians, uh, you know, stand back a little bit on and say, you know, there is still civil rights and, and liberties. And so, you know, it, it very well became apparent within the first couple of months of the pandemic that Canada would likely not be a place where COVID zero would work. But, you know, you have to give it to places like New Zealand that have a very limited healthcare system, worse than Canada in some sense as far as ICU capacity. And they have the natural barriers to make it an effective mm. strategy, the police traffic coming in. You know, they gave it a good shot. And then again, Delta changed everything at that point where where, you know, people are getting infected. By the time you find them, there's another set of people already infected by that point. And it's hard to keep things under control, even with mm. contact tracing and lockdowns. Why I like talking to you and, and why uh, I think your voice is a valuable one uh, is you're, you're looking certainly at the macro issues of covid. And it's understandable when someone says, I got to take care of me. I got to take care of people in my household. I got to take care of family members, older or younger. But you've looked at the entire globe and you've looked at the idea of vaccine equity and more developed, richer countries, which we are one. We forget how rich we truly are. Sometimes we need to be giving back because, um, you know, yeah, a fully vaccinated household. You can make the case that your danger is over. But if you want everybody to be on at least somewhat of a level playing field, we've got to be vaccinating other countries. What are positives happening in that department right now? What are things you're still looking at going, oh, we're, we're falling short. We just don't get it. Give me one of each if you can. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the targets for the end of the month were at least 10% of the world has seen a first dose of vaccine. You know, it, the targets fell a bit short in sub-Saharan Africa, but a good number of countries were still able to meet that. So that is progress. Uh, you know, there there are vaccines rolling into places where they should be. But, you know, looking at the future forecast, and particularly now with pressures of a booster campaign in many countries, plus uh, pediatric campaigns in many countries that are upcoming, there is going to be a lot of strain. And COVAX, our global consortium, is already 25% down on what's projected to come in to, to them to distribute to the world by the end of the year. I wouldn't be surprised that that 25% figure gets revised in October and November as, as countries start pulling more of their supply back. Uh, and so, you know, again, this is going to have implications not only for us. You know, if we want to travel, go see the world, go to those sunspots. Yeah. Where- Go. There, there are places there that haven't seen as much vaccine as Canada. 
but also, you know, economically and, and, and even with the variation and variance of this virus, you got to be paying attention to this, right? You know, if we want COVID zero, if we felt like COVID zero was an appropriate approach, we should be vaccinating much more of the world to achieve that, not, not just revaccinating a small portion of the world. Well, I know you saw what the IMF chief said was the number, and it's a $5.3 trillion global loss mm-hmm. uh, because of a lack of vaccines to low-income countries. And and to bring it home a little bit, this is a little bit like people saying, oh, well, tests cost money and these rapid tests and whatnot. I'm like, you do realize what an ICU stay costs, and you do realize what hospitalizing someone and putting them on a ventilator uh, costs. And then there's the you know rehab, there's the mental, physical, emotional rehabilitation post-COVID costs. So um, you can pay now or you can pay later. But either way, there's a bill at the end of the day. Absolutely. And again, we're seeing this economically here in Canada, right? You know, one of the East Asia is a huge provider of microchips for our cars. Well, guess what? If those don't come, cars don't come off the lines in Canada, which means not only do we not have cars to purchase, but yeah, jobs are actually being slowed down because of it. And that has its own losses. So, you know, it's it's hard to say as a globally connected world, we can just insulate ourselves and saying we vaccinated us. You guys deal with it. You know, again, it's going to affect Canadian industry and economics just as much as it's going to affect us from a healthcare standpoint. When I saw the numbers yesterday um, and and I, you know, I, I'm I'm encouraged. It was tweeted out uh, by the province. One hundred fifty five people in the ICU, one hundred forty seven of the one hundred fifty five are not fully vaccinated. So we've got eight people, eight in a province of 15 to 16 million people in intensive care. Would we love to have zero? Sure. But we only have eight. And maybe in spite of, of some of the, the misdirection and the miscommunication and, and some of the apathy about COVID now, we're doing really well. Do we pat ourselves on the back enough? Do Shouldn't that not be the lead story sometimes is how well Ontario has been insulated against COVID and against Delta? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I think there's a lot of successes we've had in Ontario and we've had vaccine rates that are really high. But more importantly, the outreach and the people that have been working on the ground trying to get vaccines into the highest risk populations has been going incredibly well. Could it be better? Absolutely. But, you know, I think this is one of the proud points of Ontario. And the reason why we're not seeing this this rapid surge in cases that we've seen out West is that, you know, we're vaccinating the highest risk people. They're, you know, they're protected now from COVID-19. Yes, you know, there are pressures that may move into the winter season that may make the risk of infection higher, particularly as we're going inside. But, for the time being, vaccines are doing exactly what they need to. If you think back to October 2020 as compared to today, you know, the, the case numbers are the same, but the trajectory is very different. Cases were rocketing up last year. We didn't know if we were going to lock down again. We were worried about schools. Mm-hmm. We we're worried about healthcare capacity being overloaded. Uh, and now, you know, we have vaccines in 83% of the population and 86% with a single dose. Uh, healthcare utilization is stable. We have schools open. We have a bunch of society open. We're talking about having Thanksgiving together for the first time during this pandemic. You know, I think there is something to be proud of here. It doesn't say it over yet but I, I think at least we can breathe a little bit right now to say you know we're doing pretty good and, and as long as we continue to do what we're doing i think we'll be okay for the next few months dr zane chagler our guest yeah last thing like it, it's it's you and i know what's what social media is like when you actually put out good numbers people are like don't get cocky there's still be-. and i'm like I, I, you and i like our sports to me this is like 
You know, this is like Kyle Lowry showing up for a big game. He knows how good he is when he shows up, but he knows how hard he has to work. I think it's two things. You know what you do best. We know what we've done. We should congratulate ourselves for that. And we know we got to keep risk mitigating. Who are two or two of the the two guys that stay the latest uh, in in NFL quarterbacks are are Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. They're not the most gifted or skilled quarterbacks. But they damn well work the hardest, and they're and their confident and their confidence swells as a result. I sometimes worry we don't do that enough here in this province, and say we got this, but we got to keep working. They're two things. Yeah, and I think as as case counts stay relatively low, we can focus on things that are high yield interventions now, right? Mm-hmm. Doctor Moore with rapid testing in schools yesterday. We're now working, you know, there's lots of new exciting early therapies for COVID-19 to mitigate hospitalizations that we're slowly starting to bring out. You know, I think this is the time, right? Like you, we're going into this this winter. Yes, there's going to be a lot of pressure as people go indoors, but we have the opportunity now to really focus on where it counts and try to mitigate transmission on where it counts and do that, right? Work hard still, but at the same time, you know, for the average individual that's fully vaccinated, their world is very different now. And, and again, we can pat ourselves on the back and to medical science and, and our communities for getting access to this, to really saying, you know, that we, we can live with this virus sustainably. It's not going to be an existential threat for people. It might be annoying, but, uh, but you know, the world is very different in October 21 than it was in October 2020. I have to ask you about that because I know you and I would have conversations in the summer about the, the effectiveness of one dose or, or the impact of people who had COVID and get acquired immunity. That does not mean you shouldn't get vaccinated. Of course you should. And when you bring up the therapies, I wonder... I hope we can move through a a lot of pushback on that because people sometimes roll their eyes and go, oh, is this about ivermectin? Is this about this? No, it's not. There's antiviral pills that all these established drug companies like Merck and Pfizer are going to. Of course, we were going to have just like we have pills that control the flu and symptoms for the flu. Of course, this was coming. This isn't this isn't some kind of anti-vax thing. I think there's a real misunderstanding and uh, and a visceral uh, um, ignorance about this in, in some aspects. Yeah, absolutely. And again, look, the end the end point of all of this is not that COVID is going to disappear from our world. We probably ha- aren't going to get there at this point, but we're going to have the tools to be able to keep people out of hospital to mitigate that part of healthcare overload and lead to this being a manageable disease in the community for most populations. And so, you know, to say that the drug companies have a conspiracy, no, they've been working on these drugs for the last 20 months. They're just coming to fruition now and we're getting access to them, which is great. You know, again, we don't want to be practicing like March of 2020. We want to be practicing with a year and a half of innovation in place. And, you know, I would rather be at this place with, with all of these tools in the chest rather than the way we were practicing in October of 2020 and just praying that things wouldn't get worse. Uh, and, and obviously they did. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. Love your perspective on this, Dr. Chagla. Have yourself a great Wednesday. You too. All the best. Okay. A lot of complexities uh, with this testing scenario, the rapid versus uh, a PCR. It's got, it's, it, it, it isn't the easiest thing on the planet to unpack, but yesterday, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore says they will deploy testing, a surveillance testing program coming to select Ontario schools next week. To be honest, you kind of hope that one of your schools isn't selected if that's where your kids are going, because it means it's a high concern area for COVID. Um, there's a lot of layers to this. Let's bring on NDP education critic. We're always pleased when she makes time for us. It's valuable and we appreciate it. And she is Merritt Styles. It's great to have you on as always. Thanks very much for doing that and making the time. 
Good morning. Great to be here. I heard two educators tell me, independent of each other, I said, what do you think of this? And they both used a word that stuck out to me yesterday when I messaged them, vague. They used the word vague. Is that an accurate um, reflection of how you feel about this and that it's confusing to some parents and it doesn't have a lot of detail to it right now? Mm-hmm. I think that is actually where most people are at today. A lot of parents scratching their heads, but like myself wondering what this actually means for them and for their school and for their kids. And and that's, I think, what everybody was left with yesterday were just more questions than answers. And, you know, about a week ago, the government cracked down on parents who had organized in schools across the province to try to acquire rapid testing and put in place programs, uh, you know, without any kind of central or provincial leadership on this. And then they shut that all down. And so a lot of people are wondering, well, well why did they shut that down? Could we put it? Could we get it running again? And and what are what does it mean that that public health units are going to be able to identify which schools get this rapid testing? It is concerning too because the, they've got value. Doctor Moore said they've got value for unvaccinated asymptomatic students, and I'm thinking, well, symptomatic students, of course, they should stay home. And I do think parents, for the most part, are being very proactive, being very understanding about the circumstances, but they're nervous too, aren't they? Once they and we're right where we were last year, whether you're vaccinated or not whereas uh, if you keep your kid home a day or two suspicion starts to grow and your school may ask well, why is that kid home and it could just be the flu it could just be a sore throat it could be something mental or emotional but everybody would worry that that kid coming back had covid in the first place yeah that's right and that's why testing is so important um but look i, I mean at the end of the day what's missing here and what has been missing since school started uh, is a proactive strategy. You know, I'm not the expert. Uh, uh, most of the parents I know have had to become experts <laughs> to some extent um, on on testing and, and what's right and how to make this kind of thing work because the government has failed. Um, and so what we're looking for right now is, again, more clarity, more leadership uh, to understand how these tests can be best used. And we have seen other provinces like Nova Scotia and Quebec put in place more comprehensive programs. Uh, so the government has a lot of uh, details that they need to, to, to roll out. And instead what they're doing, again, is they're downloading everything onto public health units and school boards. And so I'm really worried we're going to see this patchwork uh, program again, and people are going to be left with a lot of that same uncertainty, um, unfortunately. Merritt Stiles is our guest, NDP education critic. What I hear on the ground, though, too, and I, and I wonder if it's what you hear is, look, schools went better in the fall last year than some had predicted. You're going to see a wide range of predictions you did in 2020 and, and you did here as well. But I think parents, for the most part, are pleased. They know teachers are bringing it every day. They know the long hours uh, are, are there. And and of course, there's some stress with it, even if they're fully vaccinated. But it, it, I don't know that there's the same stress for a fully vaccinated educator and for parents of fully vaccinated households like there was last year. This seems to be going better than some predicted. Well, sure. Vaccination is absolutely the key. We know that. Uh, And until we can get all of the younger kids under 12 actually vaccinated, until that is in place, we are going to be dealing with some of this uncertainty, this ongoing stress to schools and families and and communities. So it is critical. A third of the COVID uh, cases right now are in our schools. Um, and a lot of that is, of course, those kids who aren't eligible yet for the vaccination. So, But that's why this rapid testing is so critical in this moment. And, and also because really, ultimately, our aim has to be 
keeping our schools open, keeping our kids in class, in person. Last year was, you know, it may have started out okay, but it was a disaster. We had 26 Mm -hmm. weeks of closure. We cannot afford that again. And that's why we're also calling on the government now to to get the wheels moving so that we can have a a school-wide vaccination program in place as soon as those childhood vaccines are available. But I'm curious, do you worry um, winter somehow will be worse? Pre-vaccination last year, I got it because we were able and, and teachers were as resourceful and resilient as they could be getting classrooms outside or having gym class outside. But kids were still eating at school indoors. They were still gathering at school indoors. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I can't speak for your kids, but I, I mean, mine are inside more than they're outside. It's great if we can get them outside two or three hours a day and they're out playing a, a sport or shooting hoops or walking or biking with a friend. But for the most part, we all live more indoors than outdoors. What do you think changes come January or February of anything? Yeah, I think that's why, again, like we're all hoping that we can get this vaccination in place uh, as soon as possible. But yes, because I think if not, then we are going to have those risks. But look, I mean, like you said, a lot of kids are already eating inside. Uh, most of their activities are inside on these rainy days we've been having. And and furthermore, what we're seeing across the province is unlike last year, we're seeing class sizes bigger in many cases than they were pre-pandemic, which is also really uh, not exactly the right direction we should be going in. It doesn't make sense in terms of their ability to properly space and have good air circulation and ventilation. And it doesn't make sense in terms of just supporting those kids who have struggled so much over the last two years. Merritt Stiles, our guest, NDP education critic on Toronto Today, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I mentioned this to a couple doctors this week. We've got a vaccine uptake of 12 to 17 of around 63% right now, double dosed. It was in the low 50. It was in the mid 50s, basically, when school started. And there's been an uptick. Do you worry that a parent may say, I'm in a fully vaccinated household. My six-year-old is healthy. I don't see any comorbidities. I'm not going to vaccinate my six-year-old or my eight-year-old. I'd be worried about them giving it to me, but I'm fine. And the parents and grandparents around them are fine. So even with vaccines available, I agree with you. And and choice is going to be important and it will calm the nerves of some parents. But I'm not sure we'll have a vaccine uptake in in the 50-60%. What's your thought on it? Well, you know, this is why we make vaccines like the ones for measles, et cetera, mandatory in our schools. I mean, obviously, we, we allow for some ex- medical exemptions, uh, but, but we do have that list of vaccines that are required if you're sending your kid to school. And that is why we're also asking for this to be added to that list. It's going to take a while. I get it. It's mm-hmm. new. But we've seen, we've seen how effective it is, the difference it makes. We've seen also what an impact it has on all of our lives when we get those vaccination rates up. We have those freedoms again. We can hug each other. Our kids will be able to go to school. We won't have to worry about these closures. It's going to be so important. But the government needs to show leadership on that. They need to, unfortunately, they need to, to limit, you know, I, I guess how many people can, can opt out. We need to make sure that those that are eligible get the vaccine and we need to make sure that most families are fully vaccinated or we're not going to get back to normal and we're not going to get our economy back and growing. So, so in New York State, our neighbors are there. They have a requirement for vaccination for kids in elementary school and up or those kids have to go on. They have to undergo weekly COVID-19 testing. Would you advocate for that once those five to 11 vaccines are available? I mean, again, what we really want to see is is that vaccine added to that the list of childhood vaccines required in school, right? And so, if people are not going to be vaccinated in this 
situation, yeah, there may have to be some kind of ongoing uh, testing program, just like we're doing with uh, education workers right now who don't have their vaccines. But, you know, I'm really hopeful that people are coming around to the idea that these vaccines are super effective, they're safe. Um, and, and I think what I'm hearing mostly from families is an eagerness, an eagerness to get those vaccines for our kids rolling. Yeah, I agree with you. No, listen, I, I, we have a fully vaccinated household, but I would do it right away. I've heard from parents say, I, you know, I, I, I'd go anywhere, drive any. It's like when we all wanted that first shot for ourselves. We would have driven anywhere. We would have driven hours away to make sure we got it. And we all know how that first jab felt, that sort of. You know, it's a start of something, but it's a start of trying to return to a sense of normalcy. And we're still further away than we thought. Uh, Delta has affected that. But for the most part, if you're fully vaccinated and you're healthy, look, look at the ICU numbers. Just eight people in our province in the ICU that are fully vaccinated. That's great. We need to congratulate ourselves sometimes for what we've been able to do to get back to normal. Yes, absolutely. Right. I mean, like I, I always look at the numbers, too, for uh, for the young people, young adults, and they've really they've really turned out for vaccines. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are some really good news stories here. And I understand. I do understand as a parent, you know, our precious little children and and this seems all very new and sometimes it seems scary. Um, but I do think that we have to look at what the overall impact has been. It has been really positive. Um, people are taking um, advantage of the vaccination programs when they were made available to them. And I also think that, you know, as people like the vaccine certificate programs and stuff come into play, we're seeing an uptick in in vaccination. So so sometimes people just need that extra little nudge, you know, and and I think most people are still very open to getting this done. They're seeing, um, again, like what a change it's going to make in all of our lives. And they want to be part of that solution and not part of any kind of problem. Merritt Styles, our guest. I got one more for you. And I'm sure you hear from parents who talk about extracurriculars. My, my son, for example, is a 10th grader, fully vaccinated. He's going up to Algonquin Park as part of uh, his outdoor ed program for three nights starting tonight. I'm thrilled. That seems normal to me. But a lot of parents um, are, are worried because their their kids aren't playing school sports. They might have been playing uh, youth sports all summer, but as we know, there's a cost associated with that. So I think a lot of parents were saying, I did what I was supposed to do. My kid got fully vaccinated and they didn't have cross country or they didn't have softball or, or, t- or flag football or whatever. And I worried I was adamantly opposed to what Dr. Davila in Toronto did uh, because I think it scared parents unnecessarily. Where do you land on that? Should we have been a lot more ready and a lot more encouraging? And that's the board that's the unions yeah that's the government too in terms of making sure our kids had had adequate you know um adequate things to do after school to exercise and play together you know it's absolutely crucial and i know for teachers out there too like they see the impact on kids when they get outside they get that exercise it makes it easier for them to concentrate and work in the classroom right so Mm. it's essential uh, and it was tragic. It was tragic to see those empty playgrounds and fields after school in September when the weather was still good. Um, but look, uh, you know, all of this really goes back to those decisions having to be made in advance, the work that has to happen uh, all the time. Uh, the government needed to roll up their sleeves and have plans in place and clear guidelines going into the fall. And the fact that they didn't allowed for these these hiccups over and over again. And I don't want to second guess public health on this one, okay. but I think we all know that being outside uh, in that space, doing the exercise outside is a much better alternative for everyone. Right. And, and it makes sense. And we need to make sure we're continuing to encourage any opportunities we have for our kids to be outside playing, learning, 
and 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 getting all that lovely fresh air COVID free. Well, we still can because uh, the snow's coming. Merritt Styles, our guest NDP, <laughs> not to be Debbie Downer, uh, NDP education critic. Thanks for making the time for our show and our station. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Let me start here. Yesterday. Uh, in the morning, it was really, really compelling. No, not our show. Some of it was. But uh, really, really compelling testimony by the quote-unquote Facebook whistleblower. It's amazing how we've determined who and what a whistleblower is now, but but we have. And if you are going to tell stories and tell anecdotes, you're under a lot of scrutiny. You better have your ducks in a row. If you say, this happened at my company, and I can back it up. Well, you better be able to because you can smell like there's a smell test. And so far and considerably so, not many are doubting the credibility of Frances Hoggett. She's the Facebook whistleblower. So she goes to Congress yesterday and you've seen congressional testimony before in the states. I'm sure you've seen a lot of the same faces who confirm a Supreme Court justice or they were you know, dealing with the articles of impeachment when it came to to the uh, president prior to Joe Biden a couple different times, as a matter of fact. Frances Hogan kind of passes the smell test, and she said a couple things, and I think this is significant as well because it's something I thought about yesterday. I don't want to see Facebook destroyed. I don't want to see Facebook censored. I don't want some kind of limit put on it. I do believe there is some freedom out there that you can determine what you can use and what you can't. We've got to be really careful in a quote unquote cancel culture era where we probably jump too quickly to say this isn't happening anymore. This thing isn't happening anymore because but it affects a very small minority. And that's not in all cases. Right. You screw up. You screw up again. You screw up a third time. Uh, it's it's okay if people don't want to hire Louis C.K. to play, uh, you know, to, to do stand up at their comedy festival. Okay, it's kind of okay uh, that you don't want uh, Headley to, uh, you know, to be coming and and uh, and playing the Juno Awards. And it's also okay to say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want this particular website in my kid's face all the time. But that's a you thing that you dictate in your household. I don't want to see Facebook destroyed. I want just regulation. We regulate everything else that could be addictive and harmful. We do it with alcohol. We do it with drugs. We do it with gambling. Okay. And there's elements of all those things. And you might say, hey, Greg, you're talking to me. I do all three of those things. Well, great. Or two out of three. And as we already know, two out of three ain't bad. Big, large guy told us that once. But Frances Hogan put that out there yesterday saying she doesn't want to see Facebook get torched and blown up. But she's critical of it and says, if you don't step in, it's not and regulated. It, it's not going to regulate itself. If you if someone doesn't step in talking to Congress and do the right thing here, they won't. And that's significant to me. Profits before people. And you might say, hey, well, who doesn't do that sometimes? Doesn't this corporation and that corporation and the other corporation? That's fine. But what about the harms from it? Of course, companies should try and make money. Of course, you should try and do the best you can for you and your family. But here's what it's doing. Two big things. Two things absolutely leap off the page. And they're of such different levels, I suppose, and yet equally harmful. And I'm going to play you some of what Francis Hogan said yesterday in a little bit. There's the harm to children and notably teen girls. Notably. 
And there's also the political destabilization of democracies. Mark Zuckerberg countered back before we hear from Francis Hogan, by the way, Mark Zuckerberg countered back yesterday and he did say something that I do think is true. It's having more of an effect in the United States than it is anywhere else. We're more polarized than ever, people say. Well, it's definitely true in the United States. It's a different animal there. What about other Western democracies? Is Germany? No, not necessarily. England? The United Kingdom? Not really. Not really. It's, it's, but it's politically contentious, but it's always been politically contentious. You like or don't like Margaret Thatcher. You like or don't like Tony Blair. It hasn't changed quite as much. And you might point to Brexit and say, well, what about this? But it's not to the same extent. And I hardly lay the decision, the Brexit decision and the vote at the feet of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. But in the United States, it's do. Have we talked at all? Have we talked at all about Facebook's impact on the Canadian elections once? Once? No, no. So I do think America is a little bit of a different animal right now. Now let's get to kids. Oh, yeah, that's a problem. A massive problem at that. You know that I'm not somebody, if you've listened long enough, you know I'm not somebody that just likes to pretend all things are equal. They aren't. They're not. Of course they're not. What do you do better uh, when you were growing up and you had a sibling? Did you do things better than they did? Did they do some things better than you? Were you exactly equal at everything you did? Did you have exactly the same personalities? I bet you didn't. You know, they say opposites attract. Paul Abdul made that song, Dancing Around With That Cat. Who was smoking? I don't know. understand what that was. What was that? Some kind of smoking animated cat. Either way. And he rapped as well. Multi-talented. Multi-talented. But when it comes to Facebook, it's fairly clear. The numbers are in. The data is in. It affects girls more than boys. You may think this. You may not think this. You're welcome to disagree with me. You're welcome to just go, yeah, I saw this too. I could have told you this from a very early age when I watched in elementary school, and I sure saw it in high school. Girls treat girls terribly sometimes. I think they can be lifelong friends and bond together. My wife's got four university friends that she's eminently close with. All of them were bridesmaids at our wedding. She was a bridesmaid in all their weddings. I I didn't have the same bond with someone coming out of high school. I've got great friends. I've got, well, a few. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get rid of a couple. I'm down to six. I'd like to get it down to four by the end of the year. Four really good friends. I don't think you need more than that. But either way, girls treat each other horribly. And they don't seem to settle differences. And once you add an online element to this, I know I hear from parents all the time. The second I mention this, 10 text messages come in. Or I see somebody that listened to the show at you know a soccer game or the grocery store or whatever. And they say, you were talking about that. Here's what my daughter is dealing with right now. Here's the fires my daughter's trying to put out. And Facebook knows it. And that's the biggest problem. Are you causing some damage surreptitiously? Or do you know you're doing it and you're totally good with it? Those are two very, very different things. Here's something from Francis Hogan yesterday talking about the fact that Facebook is just simply unable and unwilling to regulate itself. And unfortunately, in the case of teen girls and things like self-harm, They develop these feedback cycles where children are using Instagram as to self-soothe, but then are exposed to more and more content that makes them hate themselves. The choices being made inside of Facebook are disastrous for our children, for our public safety, for our privacy, and for our democracy. 
While important, these will not get to the core of the issue, which is that no one truly understands the destructive choices made by Facebook except Facebook. Facebook knows. Here's a quote from a uh, a closed-door meeting in Facebook. They know Instagram is, quote, like cigarettes for under-18s. It may be the new cigarettes, whatever cigarettes were in the 50s and 60s. You might think this is a big, you know, disgruntled employee. I don't think so. Have you watched this woman? She's got it together. She's articulate. She's smart. She knows how to be. Uh, she knows how to use brevity in her words. She's got it going on. Okay, she does. She knows exactly what she's saying, exactly what she's doing. She's not. She's not terribly, uh, you know, skittish here. Okay, she's not disorganized. She can't be put under fire. She's not going to let them let, let let you see her sweat. But she noted the company does not have enough staff to keep the platform safe, and that's by design. They're good with fanning ethnic violence in developing countries. They don't care about, you know, just as much as they don't mind messing with an election. (laughs) Okay, an American election in 2016. They're good with fanning these flames. And again, boys and girls, different stories, different impacts right now. There's no doubt that this is true. Facebook knows their systems lead teenagers to anorexia-related content. They can track your algorithms. If you say in a chat on Instagram or you even write on WhatsApp, yeah, I've got an eating disorder, Facebook figures that out and Facebook tries to make you eat more. Think about that. Think about that. They target teens and kids under 13. I used to not believe in that kind of stuff. There'd be a Frosted Flakes commercial on at 8 a.m. on a Saturday when I'm watching cartoons. Why? Well, I want it. You're making me want it more. You know what car- You know what cereals are on at 4 o'clock on a Monday? Shreddies, Rice Krispies, Bran Flakes. That's the kind of stuff my mom used to buy. I wanted Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, and Sugar Smacks. That's a real cereal. That's not something uh, sexual, so don't get excited there. But either way, either way, Hagen did note as well that we're talking about a long-term effect here. Even if, even if the clock stops here, and even if things get corrected here, We're dealing with this. Here's what she says again. We're dealing with this for decades on end. The idea that 20% of your users could be facing uh, serious mental health issues and that's not a problem is shocking. Um, I also want to emphasize for people that that eating disorders are serious, right? There are going to be women walking around this planet in 60 years with brittle bones because of choices that that Facebook made around emphasizing profit today. I actually think this could be a sea change. I actually think that government may step in and say, not in our country, not on our watch, not on our dime. I really do believe that. I know we throw our hands up in the air sometimes. So you can do it on a micro level in your own household. You can do it on a macro level and in, in a giant company and say, it's the internet. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to, re- how are we supposed to regulate? How are we supposed to control these things? Congress can. Countries can. And you might say that's censorship. I call it regulation. Is it censorship to not allow someone to buy booze until they're 19? I don't think so. That's just what the laws say. Are you censoring kids from not driving at age 13 just because they look ready and feel ready? No, it's called a law. And we have no laws. It's the wild, wild, wild West when it comes to the Internet. And it's incredibly problematic. And again, I saw this in elementary school. Girls treat each other differently, and Facebook knows this. And so the fact that they own Instagram makes this very easy to them. Oh, boys have their flaws. Absolutely. I've documented them over and over and over again. 
but they don't talk to each other. There's not a movie. They make that movie called Mean Girls. Find me the movie that's called Mean Guys. You know what? <laughs> yeah, like it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Okay? Bullying happened. Bullies, bullies end up happening on the elementary school playground, and you sort it out. And I could go for two hours on how those things still need to happen. Why do we have so much damaged mental health among kids? Because they're not allowed to sort things out for themselves. They're not allowed to stand up for themselves. Sometimes you got to look the bully in the face and you got to shove them against the wall and say, I'm not taking your BS anymore. But nobody wants a three day suspension. We were able to do that back then. And I know about it in elementary school. Sure, I bullied a kid or two. Absolutely. I was bullied by a kid or two. I know the difference between the two. And since it's all hands off and safe spaces and triggered behavior now, since it is, since it is, nothing gets sorted out. And we end up extrapolating the situation here. And for girls and females, absolutely. We talked the other day about the pandemic and the effect it's had on women having to give up working and go back home and take care of kids, whether it's online schooling, whether it's keeping, uh, you know, not being able to have kids in daycare. COVID's played a big role in that. Well, everything's got a, reverber a reverberation. Everything has an effect. If it's men then that have to carry the mail, if it is, and they have to be the breadwinner, is that more pressure on them? Yes, of course it is. Everything's got a reverberate. This is like a squash ball bouncing around the squash court. It's going to hit one wall. It's going to hit another wall. It's going to hit another wall. Do you want to see Facebook regulated or do you want to see it destroyed? It's got its benefits. It does. But get in and tell them what the regulations need to be. Plain and simple. Our text line, 289-975-1640. 289-975-1640. Want to lead with this. It's not exactly a local story, but it is, isn't it? Because it goes into your household, goes into your teenager's bedroom. When your kid goes off to school and they're at college and you're paying 11 grand for tuition and you don't get to see them very often. You might not want them on Instagram for six hours a day. When they are, you know how problematic it is. If you got a kid in 10th or 11th grade right now, that's every parent's worst nightmare. You know it is and I know it is. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast, and we appreciate you finding us and for listening. A live show tomorrow on Thursday, of course, on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, beginning 5.30, ending at 9. Great to have you along for this. Don't forget, subscribe where you can, and leave us a rating if you can. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of on Toronto Today. It's your show, too. It certainly is. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.